Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 67. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monty. Today we're going to untangle a little more on the topic of rigor. So in episode 64, untanglingchristianity.com slash 64 for your easy and ready reference, we discussed the topic of rigor that came out of a conversation we were having around an article or a blog post that Donald Miller had written. If my memory serves me correctly, it was around the idea of applying rigor to the way that we formulate ideas, beliefs, pursue truth. And then as we were kind of talking after the episode, Greg began to advocate that rigor applies to many more areas of our lives, including uh, beauty, play, all kinds of things. And so thought we would use that as a jumping off point today to explore that topic more. So Greg, can you lay out maybe more your perspective on this and maybe why, where, well, what other areas of life you think it applies to, what that looks like, what's that based on? Mm-hmm. Let's apply some rigor to the topic of rigor. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's bring a bit of clarity here. And Yeah. Well, I think what I was aiming at is that human beings aren't just cognitive machines. We're not just, not solely intellectually focused. And, and I think a Christian perspective actually, on the one hand, you know, typically Christian concerns uh, revolve around character. You know, what's your character like? Or they might talk about, people, Christians might talk about a Christ-like character. And, and I, I, don't, I wouldn't invalidate that in any sense, but I think that there is more going on than character. And I think that there's more of, I think from the way I read the Bible, from the way I understand God, God is concerned with more than just character. And I I think, you know, another aspect of this, well, two others, um, one is sort of diversification, um, you know, becoming, becoming, I guess, broadly involved with yourself, with others, with your world. And another might be enjoyment. And I think both of those latter two, you know, so there's uh, obviously rigor in terms of um, pursuing truth, right? I think from a Christian perspective, this is, um, there's a fair bit of importance placed on this. But in terms of either diversification of one's life or just pure enjoyment of one's life, uh, I, I really, I really like the um, the way that uh, C.S. Lewis begins the Narnia series, and you have the uh, the Aslan, the, uh, the 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 talking lion, the sort of uh, almost, I guess, pretty much the divine figure there who's breathing life into everything. And his statement to all of these, all of these different entities who are there—these talking animals and 
other beings is uh, I give you yourselves. And I think that this is something that is often overlooked in Christian churches or it's, it's either overlooked or it's overemphasized. And I think that the discussion of rigor seems to me is situated well when it's both concerned with truth and concerned with life. Life in its diversity and life as enjoyment of life. But before uh, or, you even before you even go there, so yeah. when you say enjoyment, the mm. I mean I get <laughs> as as we've described well, before, you know, I, I'm exceeding the two bag carry on limit when it comes to baggage here. So when I hear in, <laughs> in, in fact, I think in a previous episode you said we could get a second plane if necessary. <laughs> Did I say that? You did. Uh, So the idea of, well, so two things that immediately jump out at me, the Mm. idea of God giving us ourselves Mm. or, I mean, really, we're we're not even supposed to have ourselves. We're, we're, you know, some, some would, some would advocate that, you know, the goal is to completely empty ourselves and be nothing. So hmm, how does that work? And then secondly, the idea of enjoying ourselves, that, at least from my background, that's very suspect. Again, we're not here to have any fun. We're here to uh, serve God and do whatever he tells us to do. This is not about having fun and enjoying ourselves. So what is your basis for saying that we're here to enjoy ourselves? <laughs> wow. <laughs> And that was just a few of the bags, I bet, too. You could probably keep unpacking, couldn't you? I just reached into a carry-on there. <laughs> All right. Good enough. You're going to have to remind me what the first one was again, but the the the, the second one, just the, the notion of enjoyment being suspect, um, I think that's the second one. Yeah, I mean, there's just, there's so much when we look at some of the ways in which God is uh, described in the biblical text, and when we look at some of the actions of Jesus, there's so much that's so superfluous. I mean, the uh, <clears throat> the book of John, the, the gospel of John, is riddled with these signs, signs more as indicators versus, say, in the synoptics, Mark and, and, and Matthew particularly, you're seeing signs as dunamis, as power. But here you're having signs as indicators, and yet there's so much that's superfluous. The first sign is the wedding of Cana. You know, and that kind of harkens back to, I think it's Isaiah 25, which is uh, quite a quite an interesting reference. I got my Bible right here. Um, let's just just flip through to, um, yeah, it's Isaiah 25. But y- you know, the reference in John is John 3, or is it John 2? Let's just flip there to be sure too. I think it's John 2 actually. Well, and more of the more of the backstory here too on the the enjoyment piece. I remember, mm. and it, it actually, you're still in that Swiss Labrie, and mm. this was, the genesis for this idea was sitting in a tutorial, and mm. I think probably at the bottom of the Shelley, or you might even be in right now, and mm. I remember my tutor saying, you know, we were talking about my life, and just kind of how things were going, and I was like, you know, what what's there to enjoy, and why are we, and he's like, turn around and look at the Alps, like, look at those mountains. <laughs> he's like, God created those to enjoy, mm. to, like, and I was like, well, you know, but I thought, you know, the whole sense of, you know, this earth is not our home and, you know, we're just passing through and it's like, no, it's all about renewing this earth. And and that was like the first time I had ever heard 
another perspective. That was the first glimmer of, oh, this is, we, we are here. This is not just some temporary place that, you know, we don't mm-hmm. have to care about because, you know, we're all going to heaven later. Mm-hmm. And, but I guess in thinking back on that, I, I definitely found that, that idea appealing. But then as I thought about it more since I was like, okay, but what is that based on? So where does this idea come from? And, and that's more backstory. And well, I mean, I'll be super, we can dig into each one of these if you want to. I, I would say just looking at some of the examples of that we have uh, in terms of testimony of who Jesus was and how Jesus acted and the, the kind of extravagant things that he did. And uh, the wedding at Cana just, just is a, one that just jumps out at me. You've, you've not only changed wa- water into wine, but you've, you've made it very good. You know, it's, it's the best wine. As the steward says, um, everyone serves. I'm reading from <clears throat> the NRSV. This is John 2, verses 10 and 11. Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. And or I guess that's 10 and uh, just verse 10. And this, this, this harkens back to Isaiah 25. But so on the one hand, I think it's, it's kind of, it's any Jew worth their salt in terms of their knowledge of um, the, the Hebrew Bible would be hearing echoes of Isaiah 25 in this. So on the one hand, this sign is pointing Jews back in, in, the, in its kind of textual context, in its it con- first century Palestine context, it's pointing back to Isaiah 25. But what is Isaiah 25 doing? It's, 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 it's taking this whole idea of excess and enjoyment and totally exploding it. So Isaiah 25 is working with um, this, this idea earlier in Isaiah. In Isaiah 2, we talk about the mountain, the mountain of the Lord's house. And I'll just read that so you've got that sense and then go to 25 to make my point here. But this is, uh, again, the NRSV and it's Isaiah 2, verses 2. You can just read 2 and... Two, three, and four, actually. Wait, you're in two or 25? Two, and then I'm going to go, go to 25. So I'm reading okay. two, verses two to four, and then 25, verses, I don't know, six to 10, let's say. I mean, I'm just going to read some small chunks. So the, this idea is larger, this idea of the, the mountain of God, or um, I'll read it here. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. So th- this is a new, this is quite a new thing. All the nations are coming here, not, not to be dominated, but why? Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. So this is this, again, going back to the original promise to Abraham, the inclusion or the blessing of all the nations, which becomes the inclusion of all the peoples. In relationship, and we're seeing this foreshadowed in relationship with God, we're seeing this foreshadowed here in Isaiah. But it's this idea of the mountain of the Lord, right? For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for all peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And if you've seen that magnificent statue um, at, the, um, at the UN headquarters in New York City, there's a I think, I think it actually came from, from Russia. And there's this beautiful, powerful image of uh, just this, of a, of a man, a very muscular man, beating a spear into a pruning hook. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. 
And then if you take this and you go into Isaiah 25, and this is linking this into what we see in John 2, and this is coming back to what you're saying, where do we find this idea of enjoyment? We find it, I think, from the, the huge extravagance that, 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 that God puts forward, that God displays, that God invites, that God prepares for us. So this is um, Isaiah 25, verses 6 through, through 9. On the mountain of the Lord, so again, the, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines. It's interestingly, it's the only reference to well-aged wines in, in the Old Testament. All, and in fact, it's one of the only positive references to wine. Most because of the other grape juice and all the other situations. <laughs> <laughs> well, all the other ones we're talking about. Well, yeah, exactly. We're, we're talking about people misusing it, and 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 and, but it's misusing it, right? So God has some some purposes and some 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 plans here that 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 involve not simply people being changed and the kingdom of God coming about, but this but this rejoicing, this joy, this exuberance, this this extravagance, right? A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all the peoples, the sheet that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on this day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And so I think the enjoyment is both the joy of, you know, in this case, I think as this finishes, and I've just finished reading at verse 9, it goes on. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Enjoyment in right relationship and in being in right relationship with God and what comes of that, right, in terms of right living. But I think that's an outworking of that from which we have, again, in John's gospel, this notion of abundant life. But I think there's also this, these, these just blatant, we're going to have a feast with wonderful wines and with, with, with lavish foods, you know, and so much of this imagery. But isn't that in me, the future? Hmm? See, I, I hear a passage like this as kind mm-hmm. of, you know, when everything gets fixed and when everything's better and uh, this isn't now, this is later. Yeah, but it's all, but, but we, the, 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 the wedding at Cana has already taken place. It's both. It's the already and the not yet, right, of God's kingdom. That, that, that God's kingdom has already come in substantial part due to the coming the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, but that that kingdom is yet to come in its fulfillment. So it is both already here and not yet fulfilled. And I would expect to see already the hallmarks and the harbingers of that kingdom, of its partial realization, and look forward to more of that, right? But, but I mean, you could also look to Brene Brown, right? We don't have to just stick in the Bible, the Bible's, I think, a good pointer and a good way of understanding um, and, and just, just see the unbelievable lavishness of, of the, the, by which, with which God is portrayed in the, in the text. But there's also, you know, Brene Brown is talking about the necessity of play, right? We need to play. 
And she talks about how she used to look at all those people who used to, you know, they used to go off and play and, 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 and or, or colleagues who used to do that. Or even more so when she found, um, she was looking for, you know, the whole initial research she did on shame and describing people who were what she called wholehearted. And one of the characteristics of these people is that they played. And she used to think, oh, that's frivolous. That's silly. And then she realized, oh, you know what? This is really important to have a, whole, a full life. This is really important to be able not just to enjoy play, play for play's sake, but I actually do my work better. I actually think better. And so coming back to this whole idea of rigor, it's the integration of being a whole self, being diversified, being, uh, you know, properly, uh, if you like, trained or focused or attuned to truth, to be a true seeker in an effective way. And yet also to enjoy what you have, what you've been given, to enjoy a, a beautiful world. So is it a you sense know? of being well-rounded? Like at I first think I think balance, and, but I think balance has its problems. Uh, well-rounded, I don't know, that just kind of jumped out at me. Yeah. Well, no, that's interesting. And I, I was actually going to go um, Augustine. You're going all over the place. <laughs> we're going, we're, we're going, yeah, we are. But he, he wrote a, a very interesting little piece that, that, that some of his uh, most renowned commentators, um, for, I think from the 40s, 50s, of some French, Gilson and a couple of others would say are really actually the focal point of Augustine's entire philosophy. And he wrote something called De Beata Vita, which is the happy life. And in there, so I'm just going to ask you about this, in there he talks about happiness as being balanced or full to the measure. So having, having kind of judicious amounts of different things and that being happiness. So what, what were you going to say is the kind of some of the trouble, some of the sticky points with balance or seeing balances? Well, I'm trying to remember, trying to remember where I'm getting at. My wife is going through the Brene Brown online thing that she did with Oprah and it's amazing. Like I've watched yeah. a few of them with her. So I'm not sure if that's where she got I, I was talking to someone. I'm not sure it was my wife or someone else, but it was this idea that sometimes balance becomes an end in itself. Ah. And it doesn't in other words, you can get so focused on being balanced and mm-hmm. that's maybe that's not really an ultimately good target to have in other words Mm. if maybe balance maybe the the idea i guess that it's like well okay there's say there's five key areas of life and you need to make sure that you know you've got an equal 20 percent in each one and if you have an equal 20 percent in each one you'll be balanced and it was the idea of like well things ebb and flow and yeah balance itself as an end is maybe not where it's at right yeah that makes sense I just think it's fascinating because if you were to go back to some of the earlier authors that we read or considered reading, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much they would agree with this idea of it. Well, they wouldn't agree, but I think we'd probably beat that horse to death. So continue with where you were going. Well, okay. No, no, no. But I, I, lest, lest, I, lest I seem like I'm beating a dead horse, uh, you did bring up that whole thing about, you know, we're not supposed, we're supposed to empty ourselves, right? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like we've beat that to death. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess I would just, I, I won't make any references to who the author is. I'll just say, I think some of those ideas of we empty ourselves so that the Holy, there can be more of the Holy Spirit 
is about the same as saying in a family where there's one child and they're expecting another, you tell your first child, you know, I'm sorry. The just love's gonna... about to dry up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We only got so much love here. And now instead of you getting it all from us as parents, we got to divide it in two. So just so you know, it's going to be a little rougher from now on. <laughs> You're only going to get 50% on a good day. <laughs> yes. And of course, no, that's crap. That's ridiculous because that's not how it works. And I think part of what we really need to do is we really need to get in there and start, for instance, employing other perspectives from other disciplines like, say, Brene Brown's perspective. You know, so if, if, if we have uh, the view that human beings are really unimportant and the idea theologically is that uh, a Christian is to empty themselves of themselves, which I'm not really sure what that means. I still wouldn't really, but it doesn't sound very positive. Uh, it, but they do it in order that there's more of the Holy Spirit. Really, does that, does that sound like if you were to put that, put your relationship with God and construe that or present that or describe that, let's say, as a love relationship? Because I, th I think the biblical text does a good job at describing that as a love relationship. Would you want that from somebody that you love? Right? So I wouldn't. I mean, I love you. I, I love this person. I, I want to hang out with this person. And I don't want them to sort of be absent or vacuous or, I don't know, pretending like they're worthless so that I somehow enjoy them more. That doesn't work. I might come back to the distinction that I see in the biblical text where God is described both as sovereign and I am a servant and God is father or parent, and I am a daughter or son. And you might see a situation with a sovereign where you think, oh, this, this guy's the boss, or this person is, this entity is, is this, the sovereign and makes the demands, and I simply comply. And that's how it works. Well, in a, in a parent-to-child relationship, things work a little differently, or they should, right? My my children, I would not say that my children, I mean, we've talked about this before as well, but I think some of what we have in Christian circles is a very partial presentation of who God is, and we lump everything under one category when the biblical text does not do that. And the biblical text does not portray matters in that way, right? So we understand that God has acted. Why? Because God loves. For God so loved right? Most Christians have, are able to quote at least part of John 3.16. And yet it doesn't seem that the intention and the notions within that verse, and I think they're much larger within the biblical text as a whole, they don't seem to have much impact. Why wouldn't God want me to enjoy my life? Why wouldn't why wouldn't I want my children to enjoy themselves? I, I need them to do stuff around the house. I need you to help out and pitch, pitch in. And I think we are doing a little bit more than that as Christians. We are more than pitching in. We are, we are committing ourselves to the coming about of God's kingdom. But that does not, you know. That's an interesting. The coming, <laughs> the coming of God's kingdom does not preclude the enjoyment of life. But I'm alive a, to live. But I think what's funny about what you just said, that whole, you know, we need to get some stuff done around the house. That's mm -hmm. so, that's so, well, I don't want to say how often, but that's so familiar. We need to get out there and fulfill the Great Commission. We need to get out there and do stuff for God. I mean, if we don't get out there and do stuff, God's work won't get done. So everyone's got to pitch in here. Yeah, and then, and then there's a question of orientation, right? 
because that, that's all about work. You know, and sometimes, sometimes doing stuff as a Christian is like putting out the trash or washing the dishes or doing stuff that you're like, uh, I don't care how you slice it. I, I'm just never really going to find a lot of joy in this particular thing. Well, okay. You know, I would kind of still be a little mm, hesitant about that view. But on the other hand, I do think there are things that we, that are part and parcel of being a Christian that can come out of a very, very different motivation and that can allow us to feel incredibly engaged. You know, so we're, we're it's, it's almost like that, that distinction, you know, where, where if we, when you love your job, when you love your work, it's not work. You enjoy getting up. You, you're looking forward to the next day. You're, you're curious about what that, the next task will bring you. And I think that's the orientation that Christians are meant to have towards, if you like, carrying out the work of the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're already in a love relationship with the one who is central to that kingdom. I do what I do for God because I love God and God loves me. And I'm really feel privileged to be included, to be, in fact, sometimes feel like I'm given really important things to do. Like you're trusting me with that. Thank you. Wow. You know, and that sometimes that can be a, cause for anxiety sometimes if we see it that way but I, I don't think that it's meant to be that you know I think it's meant to be a cause of of joy and sometimes when I see some of the people that that I really respect as Christians there's an ease about them and there's an ease with which they live as Christians which happens to be I would say the same thing as living as a human being so there's an ease to which in their relationships, things like truth-telling, patience, generosity, forgiveness take place. Um, it's like a dance that they've learned. And, or, you know, when you see somebody and they, they knit so well that they're knitting something incredibly complicated and they're carrying on a very engaged and deep conversation. And it's just this, this, implicit way of existing within a, yeah, there's are sets of things that I'm supposed to do, I guess, but there are also ways of being that work out right and well, such that I do them because I desire to do them, you know, and that doesn't mean that we get rid of, you know, I'm not cutting back against some of Paul's notions in Romans that there are tensions within us. There are always tensions within us. There's always the possibility that, I seek things that, I, that aren't good for me. I seek things that are disruptive and destructive to my relationship with God, even though that's my primary relationship, right? I'm not saying that we somehow, when we become Christians, we no longer need to be suspicious of our motives, suspicious of our actions, and apply a certain degree of rigor there as well. But I'm saying that, yeah, I think rigor is much broader and that um so what does it go go back a little bit and so like how does that play out because as, as i keep thinking about rigor i have kind of this idea of being rigorous 
of mm-hmm. being thorough, trying hard, mm-hmm. working hard. Uh, and so I'm still not sure I'm making the connection to being rigorous around playing or enjoying beauty or it, mm-hmm. are you are you advocating the idea of being rigorous about living wholeheartedly is that the bernie brown time like where how does, yeah okay yeah i would okay. definitely say that <laughs> i hit on something <laughs> yeah definitely so i think that though that for example so rigor when it comes to we've talked about this when it comes to understanding the biblical text is well what about some commentaries and maybe you want to think about those commentaries who 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 are some commentaries better than others and how would I get some of that information right so we can go down that road in a minute that one but but it's it's more obvious what constitutes rigor yeah that's in, obvious in, to me when you but when you think about play or beauty or those other things yeah how do I be rigorous about enjoying beauty or creativity I think you do or, it you have to do it right being rigorous about play do it rigorously is actually doing it. No, it's actually doing it, right? And so for me, part of the rigor that I must engage in when I play is, first of all, recognizing that I suck at play. I'm, not <laughs> I'm right good there with you. <laughs> right? I, I suck at it. So what do I have to do? Well, I have to, I have to, first of all, identify that it's important. You know what, Greg, you may suck at it, but just because you suck at it isn't that that's, that's not like an indication that it's not important, that only the things that you're good at, Greg, happen to be important. No, that, that's, that's ridiculous, right? And that's self-deception. And the Bible is pretty big on pointing out self-deception. No, 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 no. You know, God has created a good creation and that I am supposed to be a steward over, but also to enjoy. And so for me to be rigorous with play, first of all, identify that play is important. Second of all, identify people that play well. Now, my wife happens to play a lot better than I do. Well, good for me because she's around a lot, right? <laughs> so, and the third thing then, after identifying that she does this better than I do, is she'll say, hey, I want to do this over the weekend. And my first thought is, uh, really? <laughs> you know, and, and, and I've got I've to sometimes, sometimes, sometimes it is an ah, uh, really, and I go with the ah, uh, really. And I kind of say, yeah. So I'm, I'm trusting her, right? I, I need to, we did this, this is, this is crazy. And I don't know that I'm, this is all down to my wife, but I'll give you, I'll give you a crazy example. This is, this is crazy. So, um, we have a card here because we are in the particular area of Switzerland that we're in. Uh, this card allows us, it's called, it's, it's in English. Like they, they use a lot of English here, although, you know, it's a French speaking area. Uh, it's called free access, and it allows us free access to many things. The card expired on Sunday. On the Saturday, the day before it expired, Susan, my wife, said, uh, let's go up to this place you can only access through, this, the, not, not the ski lift, but the, the cable car. Let's go up to the top there. And I just thought, man, it's cold, and um, it's kind of snowy, and we don't really have the equipment for snow. And I thought, okay, forget it. Just like, let's go. She's right. Like, we'll just try it. Anyways, we got up there. And the strangest thing, I've never had this happen before. There was a herd and they were a domesticated herd because they all had ear tags. There was a herd of goats. But the goats came right up to us. And I'm, I'm not really an animal person, right? I, I, I enjoy dogs enough. I enjoy cats enough, but I'm not crazy about them. These goats 
were so calm and they were pretty big. They were big for, they're all females, no, no males. So nothing, you know, they weren't aggressive, but they came right up to us and they just kind of stood right beside us and kind of leaned into us and just stood there and they weren't scary or whatever. And it, they were so calm and calming and so gentle. And I just thought, this is crazy. I've never had an experience with animals like this before. And I know she didn't plan this. I mean, my wife didn't have this all laid out. She, she, she talked to the goat whisperer beforehand. <laughs> well, you know, we spent an hour with the goats in one place. We're just like at the top of this, this area. We're with we're a whole hour just hanging out with these goats. And they were just that gentle and they wanted to be patted. It was like a bunch of really large cats who just were wanted wanted attention and affection and it was really strangely just peaceful you know and i i don't know like i i need to be open i guess to the possibility that things like that can happen things that i would never imagine and yet sometimes when i trust that my kid my kids ideas or my my spouse's ideas they they pan out in really wonderful ways and that was i strangely exactly what i needed i was feeling really tired and burnt out and an hour with these animals and i just felt i just felt happy i felt warm i felt just in the way that animals can do you know they they had so much trust and so much openness and there it was just so they were so gentle so, I don't, how much does that answer your question? Mm, I can't remember what my question was. We were talking about rigor in terms of, like we talked about oh, rigor, rigor in terms, in terms of, of play. Ah, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, what, yeah, what I'm taking away from what you're saying there is, yes, it's important. It has benefits. And if you're not good at it, uh, find people that are good at it or if you don't need to look for them and they're already in front of you, embrace what you have. Yes, exactly. I think that's a really good summary. And I'll go one further though. On the, so I talked about you know, improving yourself. So we could talk about you know, as a Christian, understanding this, the biblical text better is helping me improve myself, be, understand myself better, understand God better, understand the relationship between the two better. We talked about enjoyment. We also talked about diversification you know, becoming more diverse. So what I, one thing that we did here, and for some people, this is a, this is a really tough one, but we've already talked about wine. We've already talked about the use and the importance, the importance of wine in both the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament in terms of, you know, what we would call the Old Testament and, and in the New Testament. One of the things that we did here that the, some of the students and I, I think we, there were probably almost some of the staff and about 15 students. So there were maybe almost 20 of us. We had a wine tasting and we did uh, two wines each from Did you do Italy. any wine in a box? We did not get the wine. I was going <laughs> to start there and then just jump up. You and should have done that in my honor. What's that? Yeah, I know, huh? <laughs> no, I mentioned you. I mentioned you on, on one of those. Uh, oh, no. Some of them wanted to do a, um, a, a a whiskey and a cognac tasting, which 
is a little harder to do because <laughs> they're pricey. They're pricey. So really, you'd only get one and compare it with another, and and that would be that. And you you, you don't you know you wouldn't drink as much either, so you might be able to do it twice. But but this wine tasting, we had uh, what do we have? We had an Amarone from Italy. We had a Brunello di Montalcino. We had uh, a Von Romane, so from Burgundy, and we had uh, a Bordeaux. And then we had two lesser-known wines from from Spain. I didn't do a Rioja or Navarra. But, um, yeah, and it was amazing to watch people who, some of whom had really little exposure to wine. And they're not getting a lot of wine, but they're getting enough to taste it. And they're all kind of getting excited about it. It's like, wow, this is really interesting. But that's an application of rigor, if you like, to diversification. So in other words, sometimes we're afraid of certain things. We're afraid of alcohol. And and some people perhaps have reason to be much more cautious around things like that. But for those that don't, I would highly recommend that you think about exposure to beauty, exposure to the diversity in this world as a way of being a good steward. If you're a Christian, then the idea of being a steward of the created world is typically important. Most Christians see that as being fairly important. And stewardship requires familiarity. It requires a degree of knowledge and an integration of oneself with that which was, that with which one is stewarding. Or that, that, yeah. And so we had this wine tasting and it was just amazing to see as, I mean, you can, uh, what about your story? Do you want to, do you want to, do you want to, which, <laughs> the wine in a box? No, not the wine in a box. Oh, the scotch. The Brora. The Brora, yes. Well, I love that. St- I tell that story. Like anytime <laughs> we get near to a wine tasting and someone's apprehensive, I tell the story because, I mean, you so here's my back i'll tell the story real quick so the all right, all right. the backstory is i grew up in a family and a culture of no alcohol for mm-hmm. any number of different reasons some of which in hindsight were good reasons and some that maybe i don't so much agree with anymore so this is in 1999 i'm in switzerland i've been there for 3 months or so I I've tasted wine for the first time at the pub because I'm just like okay like and I wasn't that impressed. I was like okay, well this <laughs> is interesting, but it's not doing a whole lot for me. Mm-hmm. And one thing led to another. You knew someone that was going to Scotland or something, and they picked up a yeah. bottle of Brora, right? Fairly like it was a hundred pounds, right, or fifty pounds. It was a lot because it was defunct. So it's no longer in existence, but some of the old barrels, some of the barrels were still kicking around. And Greg's a real connoisseur of this stuff. So you secured this bottle and and we had kind of been getting to know each other. And I don't know what we're like, hey, let's just go hang out some night. Like and just because you know, we were also finding, I think, too, I think at that time I was probably 30 and most of the a lot of the people there at the time were much younger. And so anyway, Mm -hmm. it was like, let's have some adult conversation somewhere. (laughs) And so, so Greg's like, Hey, I have this bottle. Do you want to try it? And I was like, well, I've never tasted any hard alcohol, but, uh, yeah, I'll taste it. So I remember you have these little shot glasses and you like pour it out. No, you poured it 
And then you're like, this stuff is so strong, we're going to break it with water. And so you poured like half scotch and then added like an equal portion of water. Mm. And I remember holding this glass and I remember saying to you, I'm like, so what do I do with this? Do I just like throw this back? And you were like, no, (laughs) you were so so just like, no, don't do that. You're like, just, just taste it. I'm like, okay. And yeah, I still remember it. It was like, I remember sipping it and thinking, oh my gosh, this tastes like bacon. This tastes like, it was like, it was like, I don't know, 10 different flavors all at once. Do you remember what you said? I quote you. I quote you. This is one of those. I mean, I, I quote you a lot, but um, you, you, you just kind of you tasted it and you kind of you had this look on your eyes. and You're like, that's the most flavorful thing I've ever tasted. Really? <laughs> yeah, I remember. Yes, I do remember the yeah, the complexity and the variety is definitely mm. for some reason bacon sticks in my mind. Because yeah. It, yeah, it was the idea, the associations that I had had with alcohol growing up were that it only leads to ruin and drunkenness Mm. and the only enjoyment that people get out of it is getting hammered Mm. and so this idea of of savoring something that was so expensive was kind of beyond me and so yeah when tasting it was just like whoa this is amazing yeah Yeah. i'm not sure how that ties into rigor but there's the story well, yeah, I guess it's just it's it's kind of approaching it in a way that, yeah, I think the other way that the rigor exists, and I think you brought up the good thing uh, or a helpful contrast is this idea of fear, and that I think we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to let preconceived notions work themselves out as fear in a way that forecloses on some of the real and really important things that God would want for us as human beings. So, so we need to be case, fearful of being fearful. Well, I'd be a little <laughs> suspicious of some of these preconceived notions. You know, if you're... <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not advocating that everyone, like, start drinking if you don't drink. <laughs> be careful here. <laughs> no. And you, you need somebody to guide you through it, right? Like, I would never personally... I, like going to a vodka tasting is like, come on, are you serious? Because you're not going to ever get vodka. Vodka doesn't a, have any flavor, right? No, it doesn't. You're not going to get that. It, you just can't do that. So there are certain things like the, if you like a phenologram, which is a, it's a circular graph and it charts scents and flavors. And if you look at a phenologram for fine wine, it is, it is, Beyond anything that you will find anywhere, beyond a perfume, even a, a great perfumer's perfume, it's, it's extraordinary. And so for me, it's this real example of a beauty. You know, I drink wine as, as an engagement with and sometimes a quest for beauty. It's gustatory beauty. It's taste and scent in beautiful form. Well, I'll also say you have a... <laughs> <laughs> you and Susan have a much better sense of taste than I do. I remember going to that. Yeah, we'll save the wine in the box story for another time. But <laughs> I remember being at this tasting, and I remember people like, "Oh yeah, this this has a hint of uh, hmm, kind of 
uh, moist soil in a horse corral and or a barn. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? People are like, oh yeah, this has this tastes like chocolate and black. And so, yes, <laughs> don't be too hard on yourself out there. If, if you're like me, you don't have much of a sense of taste. Yeah, and it's interesting. And you don't want to go like I, I you, the whole thing about rigor can. I guess I would just say there's a. I would hope that people would cultivate a degree of awareness and respect that does not have to include as its first note fear, which is not to throw caution or discrimination to the wind, but it's, you know, I'm coming back to a word that we kind of, I guess I'm coming back to a, a balanced approach, right? And part of that is an awareness or I guess part of what that balance, if you like, sits upon or is weighed on is this notion that life is good it is meant to be good and it is meant i think from what i see in the biblical text there are lots of reasons to be concerned there's lots of reasons to be suspicious lots of reasons to believe that human beings do some very bad things and part of that is to the earth and to the world around us but equally there is an initial created goodness to this world and to human beings which they have never lost and I think um, that seeing, uh, yeah, I, I would hold to that view. I think that any view that that um, this world or that human beings are are completely bereft of goodness and have no significance or value um, is a misreading of the biblical text and is a is a denying of the experience that most of us most of the time have through most of our lives. And that, that, that's uh, very far from truth-telling. So that's not, a, that's not a perspective I want to hold to. And so if there is that goodness, um, and that is part of what it is to be human and part of what it is to live in the world, um, and we see that echoed in the text, there's every reason for Christians to be engaged enthusiastically in their own lives, both in terms of their improvement their diversification and their enjoyment. And I guess that that that's the rigorous perspective. It's it's saying, yeah, we want to keep moving forward with this and it can be as easy as my spouse saying, "Hey, I want to try this on the weekend. Let's go to this uh we did this thing another thing she did is she did um it was building terrariums. And I'm not a plant guy either and I just thought, "Really? Terrariums? I'm going to go and <laughs> and it was the coolest thing. I loved it. And I got to, I got to my daughter, my youngest daughter and I worked together and, and built this thing and we had so much fun and it was really pretty at the end of it. It was really, really kind of, it was like a, this little sort of Zen garden thing, you know, it wasn't really like that because neither one of us had that kind of skill and we weren't working with like really specialized materials or anything, but it was this little tiny miniature garden in a globe that we built and was self-sustaining, required very little water. And um, it just sat on the, um, on, on the sideboard in our house. And you know, I could look at it and remember the good time I had, and it was cool. So what I'm, I guess what I'm taking away from this too is the idea of, of exploring depth in many different areas. Hmm. And yeah, I like that. Hmm. 
Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think maybe, I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're still unconvinced as a, as a Christian, what I would say is one of the perspectives that, that Christians hold, I mean, Augustine talks about all truth being God's truth. And part of that means we don't have to be afraid of it wherever we find it. And we can expect to find it in a lot of different places. But sometimes truth isn't just that this thing equals that thing or this thing points to another thing. Truth can be that something is. There's a certain way in which a sunset can be true, as deeply meaningful, as deeply moving, as deeply impactful. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on the website at untanglingchristianity.com slash 67. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.